Hello there, I'm Benny. And I'm Kyle. Welcome to The Doctor's Watcher. The podcast where I watch Doctor Who and I tell you about it. Hi, Hi. Benny. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good, Kyle. <laughs> so excited. Awesome. Uh, I'm pretty excited myself. We've been kind of talking about doing this for a little while, and I think we're actually ready to to do a podcast and talk about Doctor Who. Kyle, I want you to talk about Doctor Who and tell me all about it. Awesome. Well, first, let's talk a little bit about the premise of the podcast, which, as I said, is where <laughs> I watch Doctor Who and I tell you about it. That's the idea, and we're starting from the very start, the first episode, which aired on the 23rd of November in 1963. If you want to hear us talk about modern Doctor Who, then listen to the podcast, and years and years from now, maybe we'll eventually get to it. But we got a lot of episodes to get through before then. <laughs> so let's set the scene a little bit. Imagine that you are an English person, and it is November 1963, and you are coming home from your job where... You got paid in, you know, the perfectly reasonable system of 12 pence in a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense to me, because I am English. You've never heard of a TARDIS before. As far as you know, police boxes are meant for calling the police. So they actually had police boxes. Like right, boxes. yeah, police boxes were a real thing. They, as far as I understand, they were used throughout the 20th century, uh, from like the, the 1920s on, basically. They would be located, I guess, just like in various places in the city, uh, maybe in tube stations or, you know, on busy street corners and whatnot. And they typically contained telephones that were linked directly to the local police station. So, you know, you could get police assistance much quicker and easier than otherwise. Police boxes generally were blue, as we see, well, as we will eventually see once Doctor Who is in color. Yes, police boxes were gray, because everything <laughs> was gray in the 60s. Indeed. Color was not invented until much later. So on this fateful day, November 23rd, 1963, you come home from your job and you turn on the television and start watching Doctor Who. And what do you see? Well, I will tell you in just a moment. Welcome back to The Doctor's Watcher. We're going to hear about the first episode of Doctor Who now. This episode is called An Unearthly Child. And the first thing we see is a policeman who seems to be kind of poking around a scrapyard. Um, we see the camera pans over 
a bunch of junk, just, you know, old equipment and the usual stuff that you would see in a scrapyard, and the, the camera ends its pan on a police box, as we've just discussed. The camera zooms in on the... There's a sign on the police box that I don't have in front of me at the moment, but it basically just says you can use the police box to call the police. Uh, We see this sign as the title of the episode, An Unearthly Child, appears on the screen. So we cut from the junkyard to the interior of Coal Hill School, where we are introduced to two teachers at the school, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright. (laughs) I love that Ian Chesterton, to my ears, sounds like the perfect English name. (laughs) Like, yes, I, I, I... I hope nobody in England ever listens to our podcast. Like, yes, hello, I'm Ian Chesterton. Chesterton's my name. I, I would like a tea, please, with a scone. It really is, yeah. Like, have you ever heard of a Chesterton in America? I, I just assume that, like, they, they are, like, held in by a force of Englishness, like a force field around England, and if your name is Chesterton... You, you, like, are inextricably drawn in toward the center and, like, I don't know. Just cut this bit. This joke's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so Ian and Barbara are having a conversation with each other. Uh, it seems to be after class has ended, they're, you know, kind of putting stuff away and and cleaning up their classrooms after the end of the day, and they are discussing a mutual student of theirs whose name is Susan Foreman, who is a 15-year-old teenager, and she seems to be really quite advanced in certain fields like science, but... Her history homework is kind of bad sometimes. You think that somebody with a time machine would be a little better at history? I don't know. It's just you, uh, yeah. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that she's somehow related to like the, the time machine. <laughs> it it does seem seem likely. Of course, at this point, we don't even know that there's a time machine. Okay, fine. But <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Susan seems to be quite the odd student, they both agree. Uh, they're, neither one of them is quite sure what to make of her. Uh, Barbara actually tells Ian about how she was concerned about Susan's home situation, so she got her address from the school and went to check it out, and... There was nothing there. There was just a junkyard. Was all that she found at that address. Because nobody had, you know, thought to check the address before when she was first registering for a class. Right. Or anything. Yeah. Like the school registrar is like, all right, whatever. This cool. was before Google Maps. To be fair. <laughs> true. True. So Barbara and Ian decide that maybe the two of them together should go to this address. Essentially, they're deciding that they need to go spy on. Their 15-year-old student. So, like, I mean, I'm kind of wondering what the thought process is. Like, wow, she sucks at history. Like, we'd better go check her house. (laughs) 
Well, it's interesting. They actually talk a little bit later when they when they are arriving at the address. They're in the car. They have a little conversation where Ian basically just straight up says, "You know, we we can't justify curiosity." Like he just <laughs> says, "Like we're here because of curiosity." And Barbara's like, "Oh, but her homework." And Ian's just like, "That's just an excuse. Like we're just we're curious. We're just creeping." Yeah, basically. So yeah, I kind of I appreciated that you know he acknowledges that that's what they're doing. <laughs> Good job, Ian Chesterton. Barbara says she doesn't want to be just a busybody, so Barbara is still kind of like trying to convince herself that like that there's more than just creepy stalkerness going on here. We are introduced to Susan at this point in the episode. Uh, to back up a minute, before they actually go to the junkyard, we're introduced to Susan. It's a kind of an odd introduction. The first, the first thing we see of her is we see, you know, this teenage girl who is holding a radio up to her ear and, like, listening to the rock and roll music. And she's doing this really kind of weird, strange, like, alien hand motions that I guess are supposed to be, like, kind of dancing to the music, but it's just, like... Like, weird, swoopy hand motions. If this podcast was visual instead of audio, you could see what I'm doing. You guys are missing out. Yeah, and I I don't know if that was to sort of make us feel like she's a weird alien kid, or... I think that's just the way people danced in 1963. Yeah, it might have just been how people dance. Also, I wonder how many people were watching this episode and they were like, oh, cool, it's this new sci-fi show I, I heard about on the BBC, and they check it out, and then it's, like, The Unearthly Child, and they're picturing, like, some weird alien with, you know, like, antenna or something, and it's just like, oh, no, she's doing a weird dance to her rock uh-huh. and roll. So they they actually try to try to avoid being too stalkery, because Ian offers Susan a ride home. He says, you know, I'm giving Barbara a ride. I've got room in the car. But Susan says... Um, no, thank you, Mr. Chesterton. I, I like walking through the dark. It's mysterious. <laughs> so I guess we're back to our original plan of let's just let her go home on her own and we'll go spy on her. So you can either get into this car with these two almost strangers, or you can walk home alone in the dark. In the mysterious dark. In the mysterious dark. But you do like the dark. Right. Barbara actually lends Susan a book. She had promised to, to let Susan borrow this book on the French Revolution. And as she hands the book to Susan, we see you know it's this big textbook with kind of a brown paper uh, dust jacket that just has the words the French Revolution Good job, prop the printed on it. <laughs> and, you know, you know what you're getting. You want a book about the French Revolution? There you go. <laughs> the prop master is like, okay, I don't have the time to go to like one of these fancy book stores, but <laughs> I do have a book and I have some brown paper and... Uh, like was it handwritten across the the front? No, they the they Revolution? did actually they did actually print it. Okay, good job. Good. I'm sorry, prop man, you did a very good <laughs> job. But we we get uh, a funny moment of Susan kind of flipping through the book, and then she kind of looks at one of the pages and gets a concerned look on her face, and she says, "That's not right." 
and kind of keeps flipping. And then the scene ends there. We cut through a couple of flashbacks, actually, as Ian and Barbara are discussing Susan. We sort of see a few flashbacks of Susan interacting in their classrooms. There's one where Susan seems to not know, as we discussed earlier in this episode, how many shillings are in a pound. (laughs) Uh, She tells Ian that she thought they were on the decimal system. Oh, silly. Ian corrects her, and she's like, oh, right, right, it hasn't started yet. Which I thought was pretty interesting, given that England did switch to a decimal system. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when. I'm looking up on Wikipedia now. Looks like it was 1971. So, yeah, not eight years after this episode took place, England switched from the old LSD pound, shilling, and pence to the decimal system. I guess Susan just wasn't quite sure of what year that happened. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, they, they had to go back and retcon that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's our, our out-of-time moment for the episode. Susan not knowing when the decimal system takes place, I guess. She's uh, just been giving incorrect change her whole life, that's all. There's nothing right. weird about that. <laughs> but then we have this other flashback where she is in Ian's science class and he's talking about how you know you can take these two chemicals and combine them together and like they change into this cool color or whatever and Susan seems almost upset by how boring this is to her (laughs) and you know, she kind of freaks out a little bit, and she's like, you know, we're dealing with two inactive chemicals. Let's deal with some active chemicals. They can just turn red by themselves, and then we can move on to something else. And, you know, she tells, she straight up tells Ian, her science teacher, this is child's play. <laughs> I and, like her. Yeah, she's, she's a lot of fun. We have another flashback where the class is discussing, you know, some geometry problem, which... Susan insists that they can't solve on simply three of the dimensions. Like, we need we need at least five. Like, there's five dimensions that we're dealing with here. And Ian is kind of trying to, like, play along with her, I guess. And so he asks, you know, like, five, why do you need five? And, you know, I guess fourth is time, right? And she agrees. And then he asks, like, what's the fifth? And she says, space. That doesn't quite make sense to me because I, I thought the three dimensions. Yeah, the first three are space, right? <laughs> it just but, shows how little we understand, right, of of this true science, right? Clearly, like our understanding of, of dimensionality is limited. I do appreciate how she's basically like telling her science and math teacher that he sucks, though. Yeah, I appreciated that. So he's just actually mad that she hurt his self esteem, and that's why he's gonna go like you know. Ch- check out the, the junk house that she lives in so he can right. be like, ha-ha, you he live can, in like, junk. can, like, drag on her some more. <laughs> She's been dragging on him so much. It seems not like that. Yeah. That, that seems like a very mature thing to do to, when you're, like, a, a high school teacher and you have a little literal child telling you that you're teaching them child's play. Right. Good job, Ian Chesterton. <laughs> so, at this point in the episode, we're through the flashbacks and Ian and Barbara 
have arrived at the junkyard, and before they get out of the car to go in and check it out, they kind of, you know, talk a little bit about things, and Barbara says something about how she kind of hopes or wonders that maybe Susan's just meeting a boy here. Barbara almost kind of hopes that that is what's happening. She says it would be delightfully normal. Because that's what you do on your, like, high school registration paperwork, is you'd put, like, your hookup spot on there as your, right. as your address. And, you know, what sexier <laughs> hookup spot is there than an old abandoned junkyard? That That's so delightfully normal. Right. <laughs> I mean, Barbara, you know, she was adventurous in her youth. But not that I'm, you know... That's fine for her. Good for her in 1960s. Mm-hmm. Or any time. <laughs> it's totally up to you what you want to do in the junkyard. Barbara, at this point, as we're just about to leave the car and enter the junkyard, Barbara gives us what is maybe a masterclass in foreshadowing. <laughs> she says, I feel frightened. As if we're about to interfere in something that is best left alone. <laughs> Ian, of course... Gives no shits. He just says, I take things as they come. <laughs> Ian's ready for this. He lives life on the edge. And what do they find in the junkyard? I will tell you in just a moment. Hey everyone, this is Kyle. Here on the Doctor's Watcher, we don't have any sponsors, at least not yet, and we haven't even set up a Patreon or anything. But we appreciate you listening. Maybe we'll get around to setting up a Patreon or whatever later, or maybe we'll try to sell you some mattresses or meal prep kits or whatnot. But in the meantime, Benny and I both have Venmos. If you really want to send us some money, let's start with you sending an email to thedoctorswatcher at gmail.com, and we'll work something out. Thanks for listening. So was it Ian's idea or Barbara's to go, like, spy on on their unearthly child. I think it was Barbara's. She was the one who first went to check the address out and then, you know, kind of tells Ian about it. So, yeah, I think it was her idea, but it might have kind of been the two of them together on the return trip. Maybe, like, like, Barbara just wanted somebody to tell her that she wasn't, like overreacting and it's perfectly normal to go spy on your students if they're bad at history. Right. Ian's like, Barbara, remember that time that like one of your students claimed to have had their dog eat their homework and so you dressed up as a dog and you lived in their yard for a week to prove (laughs) that it wasn't actually true? Don't you think you slightly overreact to these things and come up with wild and zany plans to go along with them? (laughs) She thinks for a moment and says, no, I think it's perfectly natural. Delightfully normal. Delightfully normal. So they actually enter the junkyard and kind of poke around a little bit. And, of course, they find this police box. And a junkyard is typically not a very common place for a police box. Maybe it's just a broken police box. Yeah, it could be. And what do you do with a police box when it stops working? You take it to the junkyard. Yeah. Ian reaches out and touches it. He places his hand on it, and what he realizes, or what he says, is... Feel it. Feel it, you feel it? It's a faint vibration. It's alive. It's alive. 
because he feels a faint vibration coming from it. <laughs> and about this time, we hear the sound of an old man coughing, and then we see this old man approach them in the junkyard, and he asks what they're doing there, and they tell him that they're here looking for a student of theirs, Susan Foreman, and he basically tells them that they should leave. He's like, didn't you feel the vibration coming out of the box? (laughs) I mean, it's just Susan and her perfectly normal boyfriend in there making out in the the police box, like you do. In the junkyard police box. And so they obviously are not too keen on just leaving. They're, you know, they, they were curious about Susan, but now they're actually starting to get a little concerned because, you know, there's this old man here who is strongly encouraging them to leave and to mind their own business <laughs> and to not poke around. And they are starting to think that maybe he's actually abducted Susan and, you know, is holding her hostage somewhere. Not only did he abduct her, but he hasn't even taught her history. Right. So clearly there's something going on. They threaten to go get the cops. I mean, the police box is right there. Right. Like, you could just step inside and make a call. Uh, At this point, it's just kind of a threat. They're not really actually doing anything yet. They're actually trying to get him to help them look for Susan nominally, but, you know, he's not interested in that. He just wants them to leave. They ask, why won't you help us? And he says, I'm not hindering you. If you both want to make fools of yourselves, I suggest you do what you said you'd do. Go and find a policeman. He ain't afraid of no cops. You know, Ian says, you know, that's just what they will do, and you're going to come with us. And, of course, the old man's like, fuck that, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) And... About this time, the door of the police box opens, and Susan pops her head out. I was just reading this fascinating book on the French Revolution, and right. I can't make any headway because you guys are fighting out here. <laughs> she actually addresses the old man as grandfather, and in this moment, as she pops out of the door of the police box, Ian and Barbara both rush past the old man and they rush through the door of this police box. And now you have to understand, a police box for us non-Brits is about the size of of old-school phone booth. I guess we don't really see phone booths anymore. But, you know, it's no more than, like, I don't know, maybe three feet square. It's not a big thing. It just, you know, it's big enough for a phone book and telephone and maybe some emergency supplies so you know you've got to imagine that Susan having been in the police box you know there's not much room in there and obviously there's not going to be much room for Ian and Barbara as they rush past the old man and past Susan into the police box but they find themselves inside a large brightly lit room with these weird round panels on the wall and this big hexagonal control panel looking thing in the middle of the room with like 
mechanical equipment kind of going up and down and in and out of it, and they are just completely flabbergasted that this giant room is inside of what they thought was the small police box. So given that this is, like, 1963, like, how amazing are these special effects as they, like, enter <laughs> this larger space? Well, it's interesting. From the outside, we basically never even see the inside. Yes. The doors never open far <laughs> enough to really get a good look on in at all. Ah, yes, the, the magic of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but then from the inside... It doesn't really quite match up the way you might think. The doorway seems much wider than it did on the outside. And there are a few points when the doors are open where the camera is inside, but we're seeing like the outside of the door. And it's totally not the police box door. It's like the same kind of white panels with the round things on the outside of the door. So that was kind of odd. Susan and the old man follow Ian and Barbara back into the police box or whatever it is. And Susan closes the door behind them. And the old man seems pretty grumpy now. He starts saying stuff about, I knew something like this would happen if we stayed in one place too long. I mean, he did tell them to leave. Like, that was his strategy. If someone starts, like, snooping around, they'll just be like, oh, why don't you just mind your own business and leave? And up until that point, I guess everyone had just been like, okay, and, and walked off. So Apparently so. I mean, Brilliant strategy worked every time. Yeah, I, I can't imagine how it ever could possibly have not worked. Like, yeah, you, you can't fault him for anything like this ever happening. Why can't you just leave me, my strange granddaughter, and our junkyard police box alone? Right, To so we can you know, study our own active chemicals that turn red by themselves and write our own books on the French Revolution. <laughs> Ian and Barbara are confused by several things at this point. They, they ask Susan, oh, this is your grandfather? And Susan agrees, yes. And Ian asks the old man, why didn't you tell us? And the old man says, I don't discuss my private life with strangers. Aren't you her emergency contact? <laughs> like, didn't they have to fill out paperwork for this? You'd think. I guess maybe in the 60s they weren't, they weren't so up on stuff like that. Ian He is... never went to a single parent teacher night. Yeah. The whole time. So Ian, though, is hung up on more than just the familial relations and situation. Ian, Mr. I-take-things-as-they-come, is pretty hung up on the police box itself. You know, what's going on here? He says, but I walked all around it. You know, when he was in the junkyard, like, he walked around all four sides of the police box. He knows how big it is. And the old man... His explanation of what's happening is... You don't deserve any explanations. You pushed your way in here, uninvited and unwelcome. That's right. <clears throat> and, you know, as they, as they push him on this, they, they would like to know what's going on. They push him and they try to get him to explain. And he says, oh, you wouldn't understand. And Ian says, but I want to. 
And the, doc, the old man is just like, yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and Ian, Ian <laughs> thinks it's an illusion. You know, even though he says he takes things as they come, he apparently doesn't believe his own eyes and thinks that, you know, there's some trickery or some illusion going on here. And the old man just says, oh, you don't understand, so you find excuses. <laughs> I can see on your face... It's quite clear you don't understand. Ha ha ha, I knew you wouldn't. Never mind. <laughs> Those are direct quotes, by the way. It's so good. This, this segment is our the doctor is a jerk moment for the episode. Oh, you poor earthlings. You don't understand. Ha 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 ha. Couldn't even begin to understand. You make up excuses for the things I won't tell you about. Right. Susan kind of tries to explain a bit more than the old man does. She's she seems pretty pretty flustered in her explanations and she's kind of always on the verge of freaking out. Uh and she explains to them that she actually she made up the name of this thing, the TARDIS which is time and relative dimension in space. And she says, you know, I thought you would have understood when you saw the different dimensions on the inside than on the outside. And the old man, he gives us our bad 60s moment of the episode. And he says to Susan, he says, Don't get exasperated, Susan. Remember the Red Indian. When he saw the first steam train, his savage mind thought it an illusion too. Cool. Yep. Cool. Good job. And Ian and Barbara are pretty upset by <laughs> the whole conversation. They, you know, they start yelling at the old man for treating us like children. And the old man says, children, children of my civilization be insulted. Uh, he explains that he and Susan are exiles that have been cut off from their home planet. They are without friends or protection, but one day they will get back. One day. <laughs> Susan wants to let Ian and Barbara go. She's like, you know, they'll, they won't tell anyone about us, and, like, even if they did, like, who's going to believe them anyway? But the old man's like, no. Right. They know too much. That is exactly what he thinks. Barbara thinks this whole thing is a game. We, we, will, like, keep, we will keep them as pets. Right. <laughs> These quaint, you know, old-fashioned English people from 1963. <laughs> Barbara sort of thinks this whole thing is a game, and that it's, like, some, maybe a prank that Susan and her grandfather are pooling, or something like that. But Susan, of course, insists that it's not. They want to leave. They even go and try to leave, but the doctor won't let them. The old man won't let them. He... Wait, he's the doctor? <laughs> what? <laughs> he won't open the door for them. Uh, he forbids Susan from opening the door. So, of course, she can't because... She's forbidden. Of course. And Ian actually heads over to the, the main control panel console in the center of the room to try to open the door himself. You know, he saw, like, the, the switch they flipped to close the door. And 
you know, Susan shouts at him, oh, don't, you know, don't do that, don't touch it. But he does. He touches the console and is immediately zapped with, you know, this bolt of electricity that sends him flying. So the old man, he thinks that they're going to spread the word. They're going to tell everyone about his junkyard police box. They can't be allowed to live. They know too much. Right. They know too much. What are we going to do about this? You know, we can't let him go. If he tells Susan, like, if they if they leave, if we let him out, then we're going to have to leave the 20th century. And that's just the way it is. And Susan doesn't want to do that. She apparently quite likes 1963 England and is not ready to leave. So for a few moments... She's actually about to stay behind with Ian and Barbara. The old man is going to let them go, and she's going to stay behind with them because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to leave this time. It's just, I mean, you know, rock and roll, baby. Right. Who can say no to that? Before that happens, we are led into the best worst special effect moment of the episode. Oh, good which is a classic effect of sci-fi TV, an effect that I like to call shake the camera and pretend like you're falling. Oh, Star Trek, you mean. Right, yeah. (laughs) The Star Trek bridge. (laughs) So we have some of that, because apparently while this discussion about Susan staying behind with Ian and Barbara has been happening, the old man has been messing around with the console and punching buttons and flipping switches, and now shit's happening. Now the camera is shaking and we're pretending like we're falling. Mm-hmm. And now we get a very long, very extended time travel sequence of, you know, swirling images and, you know, psychedelic displays on our TV screen, all in black and white. And obviously, We, in 2019, or whenever you're listening to this, we know what Doctor Who is, we know they're traveling through time now, but they don't. Barbara and Ian have no idea what's happening, and all they know is that we're in this long extended special effects sequence now, and it it just made me wonder, you know, the TARDIS, through the course of Doctor Who, obviously jumps through time like a bunch. Do they have this long extended sequence like every single time? Every time. Like we the viewer after this first time like it's we're only going to see like a couple seconds if that of transition. But like if this is how the TARDIS operates and how it jumps through time then I really feel like like every single time they jump like they must just have to sit there yep. bored as they wait through like <laughs> a minute of weird psychedelic swirly shit. And it's always in black and white. Right. Even in the modern show. <laughs> we don't know why. That's just what time looks like. So after after this extended travel sequence, and after the cameramen have stopped shaking the cameras, everything is settled back down now, we kind of get to look around what I guess we'll call the bridge of the TARDIS, and everyone is passed out. 
or Ian and Barbara are passed out at least. I'm not sure actually if we even see Susan and, and the old man at this point. I think they just got bored. Probably. The psychedelic sequence was too long. Yeah. Besides take a nap. You know, you can kind of feel them like looking at their watch as it happens. and. But it's it's a time sequence. So, right. Like, their watch is probably just going... Right. Which, you know, I guess that reduces the boredom a little bit. If you can like watch your watch hands spin around. But then we we cut from the interior of the TARDIS to the exterior of the TARDIS, and what we see is maybe my favorite shot of the episode just because of how silly it is. You know, it's a nice exterior shot of, like, this kind of sandy, hilly area, and there's the TARDIS sitting there on one of the hills, but it is very clearly a model. It's, you know... It's five inches tall. Probably five inches tall. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure they were kind of hoping that we'd have, like, perspective and depth, but it's just not there. And even if it was, it's ruined a moment later when a shadow enters the scene, a shadow of a person enters the scene, and that just completely wrecks any even hint of perspective we may have had. And as we see this shadow, we then see on the screen, next episode, The Cave of Skulls. Whoa. And that was an unearthly child. That was so good. I would totally like, you know, tell all my friends to watch it and then eagerly await the next episode on the BBC. I would recommend if you have, you know, any any curiosity or any interest at all, you should watch this episode. Like, this is the first episode. This is what sets it all in motion for, you know, what is it, 56 years now that Doctor Who has existed. A lot of people you know, came in in 2005 with, I don't know, it's really, it's not quite a reboot, but they came in with a new series in 2005. Yeah. I'm sure people have come in with each new Doctor since then. But, and you know, that that's fine, that's great. But if you want to know, like, how it all started and where it all began, like, you really have got to come back and watch An, un- an Unearthly Child. It's a very different show than what we see now. Yeah, like... Because, um, so, so Susan says that she made up the name TARDIS. Right. But, like, in later seasons and stuff, aren't there, like, other TARDISes and that's just a thing that people have? I'm pretty sure, yeah. I know there are other of the same device, and I'm pretty sure they call them TARDISes as well. I guess we'll eventually find out, but yeah, I think there are. So people just, like, you know, forget what came before and no one's really paying much right. attention to the canon. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think Doctor Who in general is really just a show that that plays fast and loose with canon. At some point in the first season, we're going to be talking about Daleks. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure the Daleks as a species have like 20 different origin stories <laughs> over the course of Doctor Who. And... You know, they have a 
different abilities and you know the Daleks in 1963 are quite different than you know the Daleks that Jodie Whittaker faced in the New Year's episode that our podcast podcast will cover years and years from now <laughs> maybe eventually so yeah it was it was interesting i've seen an unearthly child a number of times now pretty sure i've shown it to you before yeah i think i don't really remember it well to be honest but also like not a lot happens in this yeah, episode it's really true it's you know it's it's basically just character introductions yeah and like setting up the premise of the entire show. Yeah. You know, here's a couple school teachers. Here's their weird student. Uh-huh. Here's her weird grandfather. Uh-huh. They travel in time. Yeah, like, how... I mean... I feel like you could cover that in ten minutes. Easily. And then, like, I don't know how much padding the episode had or how much of it was just like, oh, let's drive from school to the junkyard, and they're just in the car for like <laughs> 10 minutes. Like, yep, on our way to the junkyard. Yeah. Or, or talking about how much they hope that she's just making out with some boy like a normal teenager. Right. Yeah, the pacing of the show is pretty different from, you know, just shows in from the 60s in general. Yeah, are, I guess so. They were paced very differently than what we're used to now. And, and of course, I guess the other difference is that, as we will learn as we go through this project, the old episodes were very much serialized. They would take one story and tell it over the course of several episodes. Mm-hmm. So even though the episodes themselves were, you know, 20, 25 minutes, a story might be, like, several hours, mm-hmm. just over the course of a bunch of episodes. Whereas, I feel like in the modern Doctor Who they will occasionally do, like, maybe a two- or three-episode arc. Yeah. But that's really it. Other than that, you'll get, like, one story, one episode. Or, you know, you'll have, like, each episode in the season is mostly its own story, but then you'll have, like, the little 30-second call-out to the overall season arc at the end of the episode. Yeah. And, yeah, so they're, they're telling stories in pretty different ways. It's kind of interesting to see, you know, how it's how it's changed. I do think, I remember watching these at some point, because I remember, like, I think his name actually is Doctor Who in the, the early in, episodes yeah, or something. In the end credits, it actually says Doctor Who, William Hartnell. In this first episode, I don't think they ever refer to him as the doctor or call him anything like that. I might be wrong, but I think they don't really get into it until the second episode. It's okay, Kyle. We can always edit this in later and you'll be like, <laughs> oh yeah, no, they definitely don't mention it at all This in this episode. That's true. It's almost like our own version of time, Kyle. <laughs> but no, yeah, like I feel like the thing that always kind of blew my mind about these early episodes with uh, um, the first Doctor is that there had to have been some, like, BBC board meeting or writers meeting when they were all like, and who shall be, you know, our, our protagonist for this new sci-fi show that we're going to make? Oh, let's make it an old man. Like, you know, it can be this grandfatherly old man. And so some BBC executive is like, 
oh, you mean some twinkly-eyed old gentleman who's so charming and, you know, is going to <laughs> whisk us away to these adventures through time and space where we can meet Cleopatra and, you know, see the spaceships of the future. And then someone's like, no, I kind of just want him to be this cantankerous, mean kind of like grouchy old man yeah i was really thinking more along the lines of like a grumpy old bastard (laughs) who's angry at everyone all the time that's what kids these days really want to see right yeah he's you know he's that's what's going to sell merch he's everyone's going to want their doctor who like lunch pail with this right grumpy old man (laughs) he just wants to be left alone right can't you just mind your own business? <laughs> You're so primitive. Ha 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 I knew you'd never understand the thing I didn't tell you. And I refused to explain to you. <laughs> uh-huh. if, only, if only you weren't so primitive, then I wouldn't even have to explain it to you. <laughs> but because you are, I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> so, yeah, quite the hero. Yes, what a jerk. Well, I think that was... The first episode, Good. The Doctor's Watcher. Good. Let's let's stick around and see what, what's coming up next. Let's find out what that uh, that shadow was. Indeed, we will find out next time on the Cave of Skulls. Hey, Kyle here. I want to say thanks to Circuit Twenty Three for the awesome theme song he wrote for us. You can check out his other music at SoundCloud.com/Circuit23, and you can reach him at Circuit.23. That's circuit.23 at gmail.com. Thanks to Benny for listening to me talk about Doctor Who, and thanks to all of you for listening to Benny listen to me talk about Doctor Who. You can follow us on Twitter at Doctor Watcher, and you can email us at thedoctorswatcher at gmail.com. If you liked the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you review your podcasts. If your rating is not five stars, save yourself the time and don't even bother. Join us again in two weeks on The Doctor's Watcher. I can see by your face that you're not certain. You don't understand. (laughs) I, I knew you wouldn't. Never mind.